Once upon a time in NASCAR, an infield was held hostage. And it took some good old-fashioned bare-knuckle brawling and maybe even some knifing and chain-swinging to get free of the trouble. Whatever the case might have been, a handful of Rowdy Race fans had more than met their match. This is a production of Dirty Mode Media. I am Rick Houston. Are you ready for another glorious, white-knuckled, God-bearing, spun-out, and half-turned-over racing story? Buckle up, because I've got one for you. Asheville Weaverville Speedway was deep in the mountains of western North Carolina, in the tiny blink-and-you-miss-it community of Flat Creek. The track had been built on some old farmland and was perched on top of one of those mountains, about half a mile off of Highway 19. The only way in was an old dirt road that offered just enough room for a couple of oncoming cars to pass one another. Jim Paschal sat on the pole with a speed of 80.43 miles an hour, but on the very first lap, Junior Johnson barreled his way into the lead. The rest of the day became not so much a competitive race as it was a battle for survival. Tires chewed the devil out of the racing surface, sending chunks of asphalt rocketing into other cars and even into the grandstands. Another chunk knocked a hole in Johnson's windshield, about the size of his head, right in front of his face. He drove the rest of the way, leaning away from the hole, terrified that another piece of debris would come through the hole and take his head off. Bud Moore was there that day, fielding an entry for Joe Weatherland. The interview with Moore included in this episode was recorded in 2010, seven years before he passed away. We went up there to race and uh, the racetrack, I don't know what happened or what, but the racetrack was fairly new, you know, and all this, but uh, it was dirt, if you remember, and we mm-hmm. first started running it, and then uh, they paved it, and whoever paved it didn't do a real good job. <laughs> and, and what happened, we started the race, and uh, we was running the race, and the asphalt was coming apart, and chunks of it flying up, breaking out the windshields and all this stuff, you know, in the cars and doing all this. And, We'd had to stop about every 15, 20 laps, and they'd go out there and the crews and clean the ass, chunks of asphalt off the racetrack and clean it all out. The track was being torn to shreds. Chunks of asphalt were flying all over the place, damaging cars and hitting spectators. Conditions were so bad that day, NASCAR officials informed competitors during a red flag period that the race would be stopped for good in another 50 laps. That would put the race at just past the halfway point, thereby making it official. Richard Petty was in his fourth season of NASCAR competition and had taken just five of the eventual 200 checkered flags that he would eventually capture. Petty limped through the chaos that day to an 11th place finish, nine laps down to Johnson. According to NASCAR historian Greg Fielden's incredible book series, 40 Years of Stock Car Racing, a crowd of maybe 4,000 stuck around after the race. Not all of them were the instigators of what happened next, according to Petty. It wasn't all the fans. A bunch of fans hollered, but then there was always four or five in the crowd that caused trouble. And, uh, you know, 
it was one of those deals where uh, right past the start finish line was where we come into the racetrack, and the guys had pulled their pickup up there and blocked us out, uh, blocked all the drivers or crew from getting out. <laughs> it, it was pretty funny after it was over with, but they was pretty serious. A truck of some variety, Petty and Moore remembered it as a pickup, others as a two-ton flatbed logging machine, was placed on the pathway out of the infield, blocking anyone from leaving. Competitors were, in effect, being held hostage. About three or four had a pickup truck, and they backed it up across the road right there in front of the entrance to the, going into the infield, and we couldn't get out. So Johnny Bruner, he, he was the NASCAR official in it, and uh, he went over and talked to him, and he said, we come here to see him run 200 laps, and we're going to see him run this about half lit, too, you know. And, oh, man, they got into it hot and heavy. All the people standing around and all this, and you just wouldn't believe how bad it was. Local law enforcement was all but helpless in the growing riot, leaving those in the infield to fend for themselves. A security guard of some variety ran toward the crowd, blowing a whistle and trying to restore order. Now just picture this poor fellow running from this person to that and yelling, nip it, nip it in the bud. The poor guy was promptly pitched into a nearby pond. Uh, they were asked for policemen, you know, there and all this. And Bruner talking to them, so let's go over and get them guys out of the way. Let's get this place opened up and all this. And they wouldn't. They wouldn't go over there and run off the income food with them. Track owner Gene Sluter was nowhere to be found. Johnson figured that once law enforcement showed up, as ineffective as it apparently was, Sluter took off due to his reported side business as a moonshiner. Like law enforcement and Sluter, Joe Weatherly was little to no help in the escalating situation. And what was so funny, Weatherly was just standing up on top. He doesn't climb up on top of the fire truck truck. He's out there just waving his arm, you know, get him out of there, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Safely out of the line right. of fire. <laughs> the line of fire. At some point, a bottle sailed out of the crowd and toward the competitors. It struck the man who would go on to become one of the most popular NASCAR drivers of all time. There's some cat over there, and I just, this was right before we went and opened the road up, and Richard Petty was standing there, and they was talking about this and that, and finally, this guy threw a Coca-Cola bottle and hit Petty right beside the head. I seen him when he threw it, and I told uh, Richard, I said, uh, I said, you know who that guy was? And he said, no. I said, see that guy standing right over there? Richard went over and nailed the daylights out of him. <laughs> When discussing the incident more than 50 years later, Petty didn't bring up The Rock or his response. So, of course, I had to ask him about it. According to Bud Moore, when I talked to him about this event years ago, he said that you got whacked upside the head with a bottle that somebody had thrown. And when he pointed out the guy to you, that you kind of went over and took care of business. (laughs) Yeah, I, I wasn't going to mention that. <laughs> you know, <laughs> but you know, it was one of those deals where everybody was sort of taking care of themselves, and uh, you know, people just throwing things. Okay, and like I said, I, I wound up getting hit upside the head or behind the back of the head, and so somebody pointed out that's the guy that throwed it. So, uh, 
you know, he didn't throw no more balls, okay? <laughs> and years later, he probably stood in line to get your autograph. <laughs> I <It's>... hope so. <laughs> According to Petty, if a handful of spectators were guilty of causing trouble, they'd more than met their match with a few of the competitors who had raced and worked on race cars that day. Anybody that's trying to book the racing crowd at that time <laughs> was way off base. <laughs> it was not going to work because we had all kinds of people that, you know, worked on the cars or drove the cars or owned the cars and stuff. So, uh, you know, you had a, people that were really good, and then you had some people that wasn't maybe too good. Uh, but uh, they, they knew how to handle themselves. They, they were uh, street fighters, okay, automatic, and uh, we just happened to be racing. An impromptu posse was formed to break up the stalemate, or a few heads, whichever the case might have been. Junior Johnson recalled seeing fellow driver Jack Smith about to wade into the fracas with a chain wrapped around and swinging from his hand. And then there was Pop Urgle. Pop Urgle, he drove, he worked for me, and uh, so he said, we got to go over and get that pickup out of the road. So we go back over, and it's me and Jack Smith and Pop Urgle and... uh, Coker was the other boy's name. He worked for Cotton. We got over there and uh, talking to him and all this stuff, and they had two befores and all in their hand, you know, going to knock us out of the way and all this. Really? Wow. So, Now, just how big was this Pop Urgle cat? Some said that he was about six feet, six inches tall. Others figured that he was seven feet tall. He weighed anywhere from 285 pounds all the way up to maybe 400 pounds depending on who you talk to. Whatever the case might have been, this old boy was big. Pop sort of laid his arm up on top of the <laughs> side of the bed when he did. This guy swung at him with this two before. When he did, he caught that two before and jerked him off the truck. And he popped him right back of the head with that two before. When he come off the truck, he caught my shirt and tore my shirt about halfway off. And this one big guy, he's the first swing. He turned around, Coker had his, had his knife, and he just right across his room, and his blood started flying. He went down through the field. Moore and a few others very helpfully cleared the infield exit of its debris. The truck, wounded bodies, whatever. Finally, you know, uh, we picked the truck up, turned it around sideways, and put it off the side of the road. This guy that popped, knocked out with the two before, we just throwed him up in the back of the truck. <laughs> opened his thing up, we started going on out. It was then and only then that the local sheriff finally showed up. He wanted to know who had done all the damage to the spectators. And then somebody pointed to Ergel. It wasn't a little bit. Here comes the sheriff from up there. He comes over there and he says, uh, talking to Johnny Bruner, he says, where's that big guy and you know, all the ones that opened up that road and beat them boys up like they did? Bruner says, well, what do you mean? He said, I want to see that guy. Brenner said, I don't think you want to see him. Said, he'll just probably carry your head up the back and he tore them up. <laughs> Sheriff said, well, we better leave it be then. <laughs> we better leave it be. It'll leave it be. Asheville Weaverville Speedway hosted Grand National Races through 1969 and ultimately ceased operations in the 1970s. It is now the site of North Buncombe High School. Nine drivers and one owner who took part in the race that day, Junior Johnson, Joe Weatherly, Rex White, Ned Jarrett, Richard Petty, Buddy Baker, Wendell Scott, Buck Baker, 
Fireball Roberts, and Bud Moore are all now members of the NASCAR Hall of Fame. Like I told you, that was another glorious, white-knuckled, God-fearing, spun-out, and half-turned-over racing story. We'll be back with more next time. Did you enjoy this glorious racing story? Leave us a rating and review and tell your friends. Check out Dirty Mo Media on YouTube, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Dirty Mo.